Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, June 21st, 2014. Today we're going to resume our series on Martin Luther, on the Jews and their lives. We have done eight parts with Sword Brethren. A, a, um, a lot of people are asking, are asking me where Sword Brethren has been. You, you know, it's, we still talk once or twice a week on the phone. He's doing fine. He just, um, he, he just, he's a young man, and, and well, in this dead-end society, he, he stepped back and has chosen to pursue some um, career, let, let's leave it at that. Let's just call it career pursuits, and, and I surely can't blame him for that. Um, I know that we're, we're, we're not worldly, but we also have to carve out a niche and, and support ourselves doing something. And, and um, well, well, as a young man, he, he's tried a few endeavors, and, and it, it's a tough world out there when there's no industry and, and, and no... Um, well, well, very few tangible opportunities left in, in the region where you live. That's that, that's hard. It, it's especially in the Northeast. It's a dying, it's a dying world. If if you're not in some Jew-run industry in New York in in one capacity or another, or in Philadelphia, or if you're not working for the government, there's not much else left. So, Brian has stepped out to um, pursue some academic opportunities and, and career opportunities, and, and that's fine. Tonight we're going to resume, this will be part nine of our series on Martin Luther, on the Jews and their wives, written in 1543, translated by Martin H. Bertram. This edition is posted at Christogenia under our references section on the top menu. Or, or a search for Martin Luther should do it. In the first eight segments, we, we've repeated ourselves a few times. The, the general, the, the largest faults that we have with Martin Luther, he, he had his good points, that there's no doubt. He was, um, his, his, if I had to name one thing that I most admire Martin Luther for, it, it's his understanding that Christ paid the price once and for all for those people whom he came to save. Now, now of course, Martin Luther was a universalist, but he understood that, that nobody could improve on the sacrifice of Christ. And, and, and for that reason, he rejected a lot of the popery and, and the Catholic Church um, basically doctrines or regulations. The, um, the faults that Martin Luther had was that he accepted the Jews to be the genetic people of Israel, not having his eyes open to the truths of the history of Judea in the centuries before and after Christ. He did have them half open. He just quite wasn't there yet, and, and we'll see that to, to a great extent tonight. This acceptance of the Jews as genetic Israel forced Luther, as it would force anybody, it forced Luther to interpret the New Testament from a universalist viewpoint. 
if you insist that the Jews are Israel, that then you're forced into universalism. The biggest, a, 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 a bigger issue that I would have with Martin Luther, but not as big as far as doctrine is concerned, perhaps, is that he followed in his work, he had a lot of respect for, and we'll see that in the upcoming parts of this series in parts five through seven of Luther's paper. Tonight we'll be presenting part four of Luther's paper on the Jews and their lies. It took us eight segments to get through the first three parts. We, we can do part four and probably parts five and six in one evening each. But in parts five through seven especially, Luther quoted Nicholas of Lyra, whom he simply called Lyra, and Paul of Burgos, whom he called Burgensis in his paper. Both of these men were Jews who, quote-unquote, right, converted or supposedly converted to Christianity. They were both very influential writers. Lyra, I believe, was the 13th century and, and Burgos the 14th, and, and they were both very influential and, and very widely read amongst Catholic clerics of, of, of the period. Well, well, Luther refers to these two Jews very often. He's already expressed his respect for them in part one of his paper on the Jews and their lives. That is, in, in, in our purview, that should be a huge lapse of judgment that, that one can take a wolf into the sheepfold and make him a sheep. But in the Middle Ages, Jews that converted to Christianity because of their special status as God's chosen people, when Jews converted to Christianity, that they were given um, much more respect, much more gravitas than they deserved. We see that today, that same um, phenomena today exists with clowns like this... Um, Nathaniel Kattner, for instance. That's one example. And, and we see so many um, Christian or patriot or white nationalist writers and, and, and so-called spokespeople give this clown, this Nathaniel Kattner clown, so much respect simply because he's a Jew that tells us how evil the Jews are. Well, it's basically the same exact phenomenon in Martin Luther's day, where these, these supposed converts to Christianity, Nicholas of Lyra and Paul of Burgos, were given a lot more respect and stature, status, than they actually deserved, simply because they were Jews converted or supposedly converted to Christianity. My, my personal opinion is that they really didn't convert at all. You, you can profess Christ. That doesn't necessarily make you a true Christian, and, and especially since Christian should be a racial designation and not simply one of religious profession. However, there's a lot more to... Um, to, to true Christianity than simply an I believe in Jesus. The people that say, oh, I believe in Jesus usually don't know anything about the scripture 
and and if you don't believe every word of Christ and every fulfillment of every prophecy in, in his people, or at least those prophecies which have already been fulfilled, then you're not really a Christian. You, you could say, I believe in Jesus. If you don't believe the, the fulfillment of the prophets the way the apostles taught it, such as the nations of, of Abraham, that, that Paul explained in Romans chapter 4, that's a good example. Very few Christians believe that. They're not really Christians. They're not Christians at all. If they don't believe in those literal promises and fulfillments in those explicit prophecies, which should be taken literally. Abraham's seed did become many nations. That's how Paul explains it. That's one example of, of a prophecy that most supposed Christians deny. And, and all Jews that I've ever seen claim to believe Jesus would never accept the, um, the, the literal and historical fulfillment of the promises to Abraham because the Jews claim that identity exclusively for themselves. So they basically, Jews convert to Christianity and perpetuate Judaism because they refuse to see the fulfillments of those prophecies concerning the nations which would become of Israel. They refuse that. If they refuse that, they're not really Christians. They don't even know who the sheep are. They pretend to be the sheep. So Luther, to me, his, his giving all of this respect to Nicholas of Lyra and Paula Burgos, any Christian that gives respect to a Jew, and, and we'll discuss this later in this presentation tonight, is, is not doing the right thing. It is making a very big mistake. One other problem that I had with Martin Luther, and, and still do, is that he creates many sophistic arguments against the Jews from the reasoning of man, rather than simply accepting the plain words of Christ and the apostles in reference to the Jews. When we accept the plain words of Christ and the apostles, and, and I'm talking about passages like, 2 John 9 to 11, um, John 8, 44, things like that. If we accept the plain words of Christ and the apostles in reference to the Jews, then they are the best arguments that Christians could posit against the Jews. And, 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 and the statements of Christ concerning the Jews all the way through the Revelation in the New Testament have the greatest authority and, and tell us exactly who the Jews are. They are not his people. If we'd only believed Christ, we wouldn't have a need for all these sophisticated arguments which Luther had a penchant for developing. They're not necessary. And most of them are based on false premises anyway because Luther accepted that the Jews were genetic Israelites, or at least a great number of them. And, and we'll see that, that he did begin to awaken to the real identity of the Jews, but he never quite made it there. He did start to, and we'll see that tonight. With that, we will proceed 
with Martin Luther on the Jews and their lies, um, part four. And, and I'll have a lot of comments in between the text. And he begins by saying, in reference to the end of part three, and, and the boasts of, and the pride of the Jews, which Luther had illustrated in many aspects, he says, that shall be enough about the false boast and pride of the Jews who would move God with sheer lies to regard them as his people. And in the first parts of this essay, Luther wrongly believed that the Jews were Israelites, and he more wrongly believed that the Jews were somehow replaced as God's people by Christians. The truth is that Israel was never replaced, but the Jews were never Israel. The gospel was for true Israel scattered amongst the old Adamic nations, which we see in the Old Testament, and regathered in the new nations of Christian Europe. They were the objects of the gospel. They were the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Luther was blind to all of that. That understanding did not come to light until the British archaeologists of the 19th, 18th and 19th centuries. Now we come to the main subject. This is Luther. They're asking God for the Messiah. And he says, here at last they show themselves as true saints and pious children. And to me this is another great lapse on Luther's part. How could the Jews be pious if they rejected Christ the Messiah? Luther has accepted the false piety of the Jews, contrary to Scripture. He's accepted the false piety of Jews who are still awaiting their Messiah as if it was legitimate. And he goes on to say, at this point, they certainly do not want to be accounted liars and blasphemers, but reliable prophets, asserting that the Messiah has not yet come, but will still appear. Who will take them to task here for their error or mistake? And this, in my understanding, this is all an act. It's an act on the part of the Jews. The rabbis may have talked about expecting a Messiah, but understanding much of the Talmud, you will see that the Jews really believe that they are their own Messiah. They don't really think a Messiah is coming for them. That's a pious act, and by that pious act, they trick gullible Christians who thereby accept Jews as simple innocents who simply have an alternative, alternative interpretation of the prophets. And in, in my estimation, Martin Luther was one of those gullible Christians. And he goes on to say, and, and this is good, but he still, he already said that the Jews that are asking God for a Messiah, he said, here at last they show themselves as true saints and pious children. But then he goes on to say that even if all the angels 
And God himself publicly declared on Mount Sinai or in the temple of Jerusalem that the Messiah had come long ago and that he was no longer to be expected. God himself and all the angels would have to be considered nothing but devils. So convinced are these most holy and truthful prophets that the Messiah has not yet appeared but will still come, nor will they listen to us, meaning the, the, the expounders of Christianity. They turned a deaf ear to us in the past and still do so, although many fine scholarly people, including some from their own race, have refuted them so thoroughly that even wood and stone, if endowed with a particle of reason, would have to yield. So, well, it's evident in, in, in the existence of Nicholas of Lyra and Paula Burgos that they had Jews for Jesus back then, too. But that only, that only leads gullible Christians into thinking there could be good Jews and it helps Jews to retain distinction as a special class. Because all of the Jews for Jesus give Christians the expectation that more Jews may convert, but the Jews are indeed, quote-unquote, God's chosen people. We should know that all of that is false. None of that is true. Luther goes on to say, yet they rave consciously against recognized truths. Their accursed rabbis, who indeed know better, wantonly poison the minds of their poor youth. He's talking about Jewish youth, right? And of the common man, and divert them from the truth. For I believe that if these writings were read by the common man and the youth, meaning those rabbinical writings, they would or, or I'm sorry, meaning Martin Luther's on the Jews and their lies, they would stone all their rabbis and hate them more violently than they do us Christians. But these villains prevent our sincere views from coming to their attention. And here Luther insinuates that the poor youth and the common man of the Jewish people could be converted to Christ except that their evil rabbis prevent them, as if their rabbis had such a hold on them for 1,500 years. But we'll, get, we'll comment at greater length on this shortly. Back to Luther. If I had not had the, oper the experience with my papists, meaning the people who supported the Pope, it would, seem, it would have seemed incredible to me that the earth should harbor such base people who knowingly fly in the face of open and manifest truth, that is, of God himself. For I never expected to encounter such hardened minds in any human breast, but only in that of the devil. <laughs> and the truth is that the Jews and also many of the Papists were indeed devils, but Luther didn't understand it quite that way. He goes on to say, however, I am no longer amazed by either the Turks or the Jews' blindness, obduracy, and malice, since I have to witness the same thing in the most holy 
fathers of the church, and pope, cardinals, and bishops. Oh, you terrible wrath and incomprehensible judgment of the sublime divine majesty. How can you be so despised by the children of men that we do not forthwith tremble to death before you? What an unbearable sight you are. Also, to the hearts and eyes of the holiest men, as we see in Moses and the prophets, yet these stony hearts and iron souls mock you so defiantly. Now, it is true that Luther was a brave man who defied the Roman Catholic Church and all of the Papists who upheld it. However, the Roman Catholic Church of his time was a political entity which had been in the control of men who were infiltrators for most of a hundred years. The Borgias, the Di Medicis, were both from families that were evidently of converso-Jewish origins, and a Di Medici was the Pope when Luther first rebelled against the church, when he hung his 95 theses on the door of the church at Wittenberg. Luther did not understand that the bad trees of Judea would never have good fruit. Simple statements in the gospel. Luther didn't accept them for what they, that they actually said. Luther did not understand that the Jews who rejected Christ for so many generations were congenital liars. Christ told his adversaries in Judea that they were congenital liars. And their lying continued, even if and when they pretended to be Christians. If 60 generations, that's a generation every 25 years for 1,500 years, if 60 generations of Jews denied that Yahshua was the Christ. How could one expect a bad tree with such an evil history to suddenly produce good fruit? And, and, and mainstream Christians since Luther's day are still in Luther's predicament. Luther did not understand the difference between the wolves among us and those of our own who would attempt to emulate the wolves, which is what we see in medieval Catholicism. That's what's going on in the Catholic Church of Luther's time. Concerning his departure in Acts chapter 20, in the same regard, Paul said to the Christian leaders of Asia, For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Christians have two challenges. To weed out the wolves from the flock, and also to make sure that members of their own do not begin unscriptural heresies. And, and that's the, the, the two challenges Paul illustrates in Acts chapter 20. So, so Luther actually wrote here that he would suspect that he could turn the common Jew to Christ if it were not for the evil 
rabbis. But the common Jew has lived amongst Christians in Europe for how many generations, and they still haven't been turned to Christ. And when they do turn to Christ, they never really, even then, believed the things and practiced the things which Christ had said. Back to Luther. However, although we perhaps labor in vain on the Jews, for I had said earlier that I don't want to dispute with them, we nonetheless want to discuss their senseless folly among ourselves. For the strengthening of our faith, and there's a warning to weak Christians against the Jews, and chiefly in honor of God, in order to prove that our faith is true and that they are entirely mistaken on the question of the Messiah. And here it is to Luther's credit that he did not want to argue with the Jews, that he realized that there was no use arguing with them. However, he fell short where he would still hope to convert them. He really only wrote the Jews in their lives so that other Christians would understand the Jews, as he did, and, and not so that he could convert Jews or argue with them. He goes on to say, We Christians have our New Testament, which furnishes us reliable and adequate testimony concerning the Messiah, that the Jews do not believe it does not concern us. We believe their accursed glosses still less. And by glosses, he means um, redactions, edits, or, or, or misinterpretations or additions to the Scripture in the Old Testament. In, in my estimation, Christians should never have relied upon the Jews for anything at all, including Scripture. Back to Luther. We let them go their way and wait for their Messiah. Their unbelief does not harm us, but as to the help they derive and to date have derived from it, they may ask of their long-enduring exile that will indeed supply the answer for us. Let him who will not follow lag behind. They act as though they were of great importance to us. Just to vex us, they corrupt the sayings of Scripture. We do not at all desire or require their conversion for any advantage, usefulness, or help accruing to us therefrom. And in truth, by this point, we should never have accepted them, whether or not they convert, and even should they have tried, we should be preventing their conversion, because Jews only convert to Christianity in order to corrupt it. Luther goes on to say, all that we do in this regard is prompted rather by a concern for their welfare. If they do not want it, they can disregard it. We are excused and can easily dispense with them. 
together with all that they are, have and can do for salvation. We have a better knowledge of Scripture. Thanks be to God. This we are certain of, and all the devils shall never deprive us of it, much less the miserable Jews. And Luther mentions devils and Jews together quite often, but he also distinguishes them. If I could go back and change Martin Luther's mind, I would um, teach him that Jews and devils were actually one and the same. Christians should not be concerned with the welfare of Jews. Christ said of the Judeans who rejected him in Luke chapter 21, And when you shall see Jerusalem compassed with armies, then know that the desolation thereof is nigh. Then let them which are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let them which are in the midst of it depart out, and let not them that are in the countries there enter there into. For these be the days of vengeance, and Christ is talking about the coming destruction of Jerusalem and the temple at the hand of the Romans, which happened in 70 A.D. For these be the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe unto them that are with child, and to them that give suck in those days. For there shall be great distress in the land, and wrath upon this people. If God wishes wrath upon a people, how should Christians have pity for that people whom God desires to impose wrath upon. When we see the Jews, we should see a people who are the objects of this wrath which Christ mentions in Luke 21, 22, 21, 23, because they rejected Christ and slew him. If we don't see the Jews for anything else, we should see the Jews as the objects of this wrath because the times of the nations has not yet been fulfilled. We see nations, don't we? We still have nations. Then the times of the nations are not fulfilled. So the Jews are still the objects of this wrath. And Luther makes them instead the objects of pity and, and the objects of an attempted conversion to Christ. Christ didn't say that they would be converted here. He said that they were the objects of his wrath. Wrath upon this people, and they shall fall by the edge of the sword and shall be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the nations until the times of the nations be fulfilled. Good figs and bad figs. Jeremiah said the bad figs would be taken captive into all nations to be a taunt and a reproach and a curse in Jeremiah chapter 24. Luther just ignored all these scriptures which tell us that these people who were taken into all nations by the Romans in 70 AD 
and, and Jerusalem was destroyed were the objects of God's wrath. And that's how Christians should still be treating these Jews. Because Christ said of the fig tree in Jerusalem that there would be no good fruit from it forever. And because by that time, the word of God had nothing left to say to those who rejected Christ, except that they would be the objects of his wrath. Christians should not be concerned with the welfare of the Jews. The scripture says that they would be carried captive into all nations, and if Christians were to be obedient, perhaps they should have understood that the Jews were to be treated as captives until the times of the nations was fulfilled. And what happens then? Christ returns himself to take vengeance upon his enemies. The Christians in Judea had the warnings of Christ, and they were the ones that fled into the mountains. Let those in Judea flee into the mountains. The Jews rejected the warnings of Christ. They rejected Christ, and they were the objects of his wrath. Why did Luther, uh, he, he must have read these passages. Why didn't he believe them? Why did he try to make them the objects of, of Christian mercy? That, that's a, that, that is, well, well the, the word of God has to be fulfilled, and, and the errors of man very often lead to the fulfillment of the word of God. We should praise God that we can sit here and, and, and talk about this and, and understand it. Back to Martin Luther. First, we want to submit the verse found in Genesis 49.10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. This saying of the holy patriarch, Jacob, spoken at the very end of his life, has been tortured and crucified in many ways down to the present day by the modern strange Jews. And that's one epithet Luther gives them that shows that he may have been in the middle of an awakening process as to their true nature. He didn't quite get there in violation of their own conscience, for they realize fully that their twisting and perverting is nothing but wanton mischief. Their glosses remind me very much of an evil, stubborn shrew who clamorously contradicts her husband and insists on having the last word, although she knows she is in the wrong. Thus these blinded people also suppose that it suffices to bark and to brattle against the text and its true meaning. They are entirely indifferent to the fact that they are lying impudently. I believe they would be happier if this verse had never been written rather than they should change their mind. This verse pains them in intensely 
and they cannot ignore it. The ancient Jews, I'm sorry, the ancient true Jews understood this verse correctly as we Christians do. Namely, that the government or scepter should remain with the tribe of Judah until the advent of the Messiah. Then to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. To him they will adhere. And here Luther refers to the ancient true Jews, but he does not elaborate upon the distinction. Throughout the earlier parts of this thesis, he took it for granted that the Jews who he was addressing or who he, he was talking about were indeed genetic Israelites. And he still takes that for granted. But he distinguishes the Jews of his time to the ancient true Jews, which tells us that Luther was embarking down the path to truth about the nature of the Jews. I can't say that he ever finished walking that path, but we will see more clues that he was indeed on that journey as this chapter unfolds. He goes on to say, that is, the scepter shall then not be confined to the tribe of Judah, but as the prophets later explain, it shall be extended to all peoples on earth at the time of the Messiah. And to me, this is an odd interpretation of Judah's scepter, which seems to be confounded with another odd interpretation of the familial kingship and priesthood of all Christian men. He goes on to say, however, until he appears, meaning Shiloh or the Messiah, the scepter shall remain in that small nook and corner, Judah. That, I say, is the understanding of the prophets and of the ancient Jews. This they cannot deny, for also their Chaldean Bible, which they dare oppose as little as the Hebrew Bible itself, shows this clearly. And Luther makes the primary mistake here of arguing as if the Jews were Judah. So he understands that there's a distinction between the modern Jews of his time and the ancient true Jews, but he still upholds that the Jews are Judah. Therefore, trying to disprove their arguments concerning Judah's scepter, he allows them the presumption of truth in their claims to an identity with Judah. In spite of his already having referred to the ancient churches, he still affords them the admission that they are Judah, and that's simply wrong. He goes on to say, in translation, it reads thus. And he's talking about the Chaldean Bible. And where Luther uses the term Chaldean, we should understand Aramaic. And we will discuss that shortly. 
in translation, it reads thus. The shultan, or sultan, right, shall not be put away from the house of Judah, nor the safra from his children's children, safra being a, an Aramaic word for scribe, eternally until the Messiah comes, whose is the kingdom and the peoples will make themselves obedient to him. This is a true and faithful translation of the Chaldean text, as no Jew or devil can deny. Arguments over Aramaic manuscripts, which, Luke, which Luther calls Chaldean here, get pretty emotional. They are highly politicized, and they often border on fanaticism. This is especially true of all the clowns who claim that the New Testament was originally written in Aramaic. It certainly was not. It's not at all true. However, what is true is that there are a variety of Aramaic manuscripts, and some of those are called the Peshitta, there are others, which are probably a little later. And a branch of those manuscripts of the Peshitta, which are translations of, of the Hebrew Old Testament and the Greek New Testament into Aramaic, a branch of those may indeed date to as early as the third or possibly even the second century A.D. Now, some claim they were made even earlier, and, and therefore that, that they would be... Um, well, well, some claim they were made even earlier, and those claims really don't hold up to any um, known archaeological or historical data. However, the Peshitta manuscripts, the Aramaic manuscripts are valuable in helping to understand a lot of the pre-Masoretic Hebrew because they were taken from pre-Masoretic Hebrew manuscripts. And, and if we could examine those translations, we would understand a lot of the substance of the pre-Masoretic Hebrew structure of the Bible. The Septuagint, the Old Testament Septuagint is also far, far older than the Peshitta, and that also has a lot of value in understanding the, the Hebrew base which it was translated from. Studied together, the value of these manuscripts increase even further. I would not find the same value, however, in studying the Aramaic New Testament because that's only a later translation of Greek, regardless of what the fans of the Aramaic manuscripts claim. The Aramaic came from the Greek in the New Testament and not vice versa. However, the, um, the Old Testament Aramaic does have value because it predates the Jewish Masoretic text by at least 600 and possibly as much as 800 years. Back to Martin Luther. Speaking about um, the, 
the Aramaic version of Genesis 49.10, the, the passage about the scepter of Judah. For Moses' Hebrew term, Shabbat, where we saw Sultan in, in the Chaldean, in the Aramaic, for Moses' Hebrew term, Shabbat, we use the word scepter in German, whereas the Chaldean translator chooses the word Shultan or Sultan. Let us explain these words. The Hebrew Shabbat is the designation for a verga. It is really not a rod in the usual sense. But this term suggests to the German the thought of birch switches with which children are punished. Nor is it a staff used by invalids for the aged for walking. But it designates a mace held upright, such as a judge holds in his hand when he acts in his official capacity. A luxury increased in the world. This mace was made of silver or of gold. Now it is called a scepter, that is, a royal rod. Skeptron, the word which we get scepter from, right? Skeptron is a Greek word, but it has now been taken up into the German language. In his first book, Homer describes his king, Achilles, as having a wooden scepter adorned with small silver, small silver nails. From this we learn that scepters originally were and how they gradually came to be made entirely of silver and gold. In brief, it is the rod, whether of silver, wood, or gold, carried by a king or his representative. It symbolizes nothing other than dominion or kingdom. Nobody questions this. Well, Luther said nobody questions this. Today there are some idiots known to Christian identity as Ephraim Scepter heretics who do now question this. Nobody in their right minds would question the meaning of scepter. To make it very clear, the Chaldean translator does not use the word shebek, mace, or scepter, but he substitutes the person who bears this rod, saying sultan, indicating that a prince, lord, or king shall not depart from the house of Judah. There shall be a sultan in the house of Judah until the Messiah comes. And I would say that this is, therefore, an interpretation rather than a translation on the part of the Aramaic translators. Luther goes on to say, Sultan is also a Hebrew term and a word well known to us Christians who have waged war for more than 600 years against the Sultan of Egypt and have gained very little to show for it. For the Saracens call their king or prince Sultan, that is, lord or ruler or sovereign. From this, Hebrew word shilt, the Hebrew word shilt is derived, which has become a thoroughly German word, shield, which is shield, right? And, and it probably didn't come into German from the Jews. Uh, 
It is as though one wished to say that a prince or lord must be his subject's shield, protection, and defense if he is to be a true judge, sultan, or lord. Some people even try to trace the German Schultheis, which means village mayor, back to the word sultan. I shall not enter into this. Luther didn't want to get involved in, in the um, tracing of German words to Hebrew words. There are many German words more remotely cognate with Hebrew because, in truth, the Germans were dispersions of Israel. Without archaeology, Luther was totally blind as to that fact. He goes on to say, Safra, the word for... Um, The, the word, well, well, the word for scribe in the Chaldean manuscript, in the Aramaic manuscript, Safra is the same as the Hebrew Sofer. For Chaldee and Hebrew are closely related. Indeed, they are almost identical. Just as Saxons and Swabians both speak German, but still, there is a great difference. The word Sofer S-O-P-H-E-R, so fair, perhaps. We commonly translate into German by means of chancellor or chancellor. Everyone, including Burgensis, Paul of Burgos, the Jew, translates the word safra with scriba or scribe. These people are called scribes in the gospel. They are not ordinary scribes who write for wages or without official authority. They are sages, great rulers, doctors, and professors who teach, order, and preserve the law in the state. I suppose that it also encompasses the chancelleries, parliaments, councillors, and all who by wisdom and justice aid in governing. This is what Moses wishes to express with the word mehokek, which designates one who teaches, composes, and executes commands and decrees. Mehokek is the word which stands for lawgiver in Genesis 49.10. Nor a lawgiver between his feet, from between his feet. Among the Saracens, for instance, the sultan's scribes or secretaries, his doctors, teachers, and scholars are those who teach, interpret, and preserve the Quran as the law of the land. In the papacy, the pope's scribes or safra are the canonists or jackasses who teach and preserve his decretals and laws. And Luther, of course, did not think very highly of the papacy and its offices, right? In the empire, the doctores legum, the secular jurists, are the emperor's satra, or scribes, who teach, administer, and preserve the imperial laws. Thus, Judah, too, had scribes who taught and preserved the law of Moses, which was the law of the land. And, of course, Scripture tells us that the Kenites were scribes in Judah at 1 Chronicles 2.55, right? Therefore, we have translated the word mehokek 
with master, that is, doctor, teacher, etc. So this passage, the mehokek, i.e. master, will not be taken from between his feet. That means teachers and listeners who sit at their feet will remain in orderly government. And let me say that the Hebrew word to which Luther refers, mehokek, is among other things often translated as law, lawgiver, or governor in the King James Version. It's lawgiver in Psalm 60 and in Psalms 108.8, where in both places it says, Judah is my lawgiver. That's the word which Luther is talking about here. And he goes on to say, for every country, if it is to endure, must have these two things, power and law. The country, as the saying goes, must have a lord, a head, a ruler, but it must also have a law by which the ruler is guided. These are the mace, the scepter, right, and the mehokek, or sultan and safra, the scepter and the lawgiver. Solomon indicates this also, for when he had received the rod, that is, the kingdom, he prayed only for wisdom that he might rule the people justly. 1 Kings chapter 3. For wherever sheer power prevails without the law, where the sultan is guided by his arbitrary will and not by duty, there is no government but tyranny, akin to that of Nero, Caligula, Dionysius, Henry of Brunswick, and the like. Such does not endure long. On the other hand, where there is law, but no power to enforce it, there the wild mob will also do its will, and no government can survive. Therefore, both must be present, law and power, sultan and safra, which is scepter and, and, and a lawgiver, to supplement one another. Thus, the counselors who gathered in Jerusalem who, and who were come from the tribe of Judah were the safra, the Jews called them the Sanhedrin, and, and of course we have Luther confusing Jews and Judah again. Herod, a foreigner, an Edomite, did away with this, and he himself became both Sultan and Safra, Mace and Mehokek in the house of Judah, Lord and Scribe. Then the saying of the patriarch began to be fulfilled that Judah was no longer to retain the government or the safra. Now it was time for the Messiah to come and to occupy his kingdom and sit on the throne of David forever, as Isaiah 9, 6 prophecies. Therefore, let us now study the saying of the patriarch. And here we see that Martin Luther realized that Herod was an Edomite. As the historian Josephus explicitly stated on several occasions in his histories, I think it's four. How, however, it is evident that Luther did not truly realize that all of the other so-called Jews of his time were also Edomites, because in Herod's kingdom, the greater number of the people of Judea by that time were Edomites. Luther doesn't seem to have realized that, even though he distinguishes between 
the ancient true Jews and the Jews of his time. He still upholds that they represent genetic Israel and genetic Judah. Judah, he declares, your brothers shall praise you. Genesis 49.8. This, it seems to me, requires no commentary. It states clearly enough that the tribe of Judah will be honored above all his brothers and will enjoy the prerogative. The text continues, your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies, etc. This also declares plainly that the famous and prominent tribe of Judah must encounter enemies and opposition, but that all will end successfully and victoriously for it. We continue, your father's son shall bow down before you, etc. Again, it is clear that this does not refer to the captivity, but to the rule over his brothers, all of which was fulfilled in David. That, that's Luther's interpretation. But not only did the tribe of Judah in David become lord over his brothers, he also spread his rule beyond like a lion, forcing other nations into submission. For instance, the Philistines, the Syrians, the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Edomites. And this is all well and good, but David wasn't a Jew. This is what he praises in these beautiful words, Genesis 49.9. Judah is a lion's whelp from the prey, my son. You have gone up. He is stooped down. He is crouched as a lion. And there's a lioness who dares to rise up against him. This is to say that he was enthroned and established a kingdom which no one could overwhelm, though the adjacent nations frequently and mightily tried to do so. All right. Up to this point, the patriarch has established, ordained, and confirmed the kingdom, the sultan, the rod, the safra, in the tribe of Judah. There, Judah, the sultan, sits enthroned for his rule. What is to happen now? This, he says, he shall remain thus until the Messiah comes. That is, many will oppose him, attempting to overthrow and destroy the kingdom and simply make it disappear from the earth. The histories of the kings and the prophets amply testify that all the Gentile nations ever earnestly strove to do this. And Luther abuses that term Gentile because a Gentilis is um, a corrupt word. I don't know what the German of this actually says, but it seems that Luther does abuse the term Gentile or Gentilis in Latin to mean non-Jewish nations. The word Gentile, of course, does not appear in Greek scripture. And the patriarch himself declares, as we heard before, that Judah must have its foes. For such is the course of events in the world that wherever a kingdom or principality rises to a position of might, envy will not rest until it is destroyed. All of history illustrates this with numerous examples. Luther should have understood the extent of the Edomite infiltration of Judea if he understood that Herod was an Edomite. With that, he would have understood the New Testament and the nature of the Jews, and he, uh, he certainly did not. We'll continue with Luther.
However, in this instance, the Holy Spirit states, this kingdom in the tribe of Judah is mine, and no one shall take it from me, no matter how angry and how mighty he may be, even if the gates of hell should try. The words will still prove true. Non offertur, it shall not be taken away. He, he makes a French statement and then translates it in English. You devils and Gentiles may say, we shall put an end to it, we shall devour it, we shall silence it, as Psalm 74 bemoans. But it shall remain undevoured, undevastated. The Shebet, or Sultan, shall not depart from the house of Judah, nor the Safra from his children's children, until the Shiloh, or Messiah, comes, no matter how you all rant and rage. And this is Luther's interpretation. However, in the first advent of Christ, Shiloh means peace, and Christ came not to bring peace, but a sword. So we cannot agree with Luther's interpretation of Genesis 49.10. Peace will not be brought by the Messiah until his second advent, when all of his enemies are destroyed. Luther does not understand that while there was a remnant of Judah in Palestine until after the time of Christ, most of Judah and Israel had long been in Europe, and that was where the true kingdom of God was in the time of Christ, the nation bearing the fruits of the kingdom. The Psalm 114, verse 2 says, Judah was his sanctuary, and Israel, his dominion. The Jews were not Judah, and they were certainly not Israel. And we'll discuss this later as Luther makes more comments. And when he does appear, back to Luther, the kingdom will become far different and still more glorious. For since you would not tolerate the tribe of Judah in a little narrow corner. So we see here that Luther imagines Palestine to contain the tribe of Judah, which is not true. Even if men don't see the fulfillment of the prophecy, the prophecy is going to come true. We'll see that the way Luther interprets it, it cannot be true. For since you did, would not tolerate the tribe of Judah in a little narrow corner, I shall change him into a truly strong lion who will become sultan and safra in all the world. And Luther does not understand where Judah actually is, and that the Judean Israelites were only a small remnant and a tiny fraction of Judah. He goes on to say, and, and he's putting words in the mouth of, of God, basically. I will do this in such a way that he will not draw a sword nor shed a drop of blood, but the nations will voluntarily and gladly submit themselves to him and obey him. Such shall be his kingdom, for after all, the kingdom and all things are his. That now, that this is partially true in that Israel was to turn to Christ and the nations of Europe were true Israel. Luther was blind to that. And if Luther's interpretation was true, then the Turks and the Jews and the Egyptians and the rest of the Arabs, 
they should have followed suit because Luther's a universalist, but he does not see the failure of his own universalist interpretations. He goes on to say, approach the text, both Chaldean and Hebrew, with this understanding and this thought, and I wager that your heart, together with the letters, will surely tell you, by God, that is the truth, that is the patriarch's meaning. And then consult the histories to ascertain whether this has not happened and come to pass in this way and still continues to do so. And it's the part where it still continues to do so that fails because only the white nations of Europe, for the most part, accepted Christianity. Christianity was marginalized everywhere else. The Turks and the Arabs and the Jews did not accept it. And they did not continue to do so. Again, you will be compelled to say, it is verily so, for it is undeniable that the Sultan and Safra remained with the tribe of Judah until Herod's time. This is Luther's interpretation. We do not agree with it. Even if it was at times feeble and was not maintained without opposition of mighty foes, Nevertheless, it was preserved. Under Herod and after Herod, however, it fell into ruin and came to an end. It was so completely destroyed that even Jerusalem, once the throne seat of the tribe of Judah and the land of Canaan, were wiped out. Thus the verse was fulfilled, which said that the Sultan has departed and the Messiah has come. The problem with this interpretation is that the rulers of the Maccabees were of the tribe of Levi. They were not of the tribe of Judah. They should not be confused with Judah, even if they used the name of the ancient tribe to describe their land and their kingdom. Herod overthrew the kingdom of the Maccabees, which never had a ruler or a lawmaker from Judah. There was no ruler in Judah for 600 years before Christ, and Luther's interpretation fails in this aspect. But the promises of God did not fail because most of Judah and most of Israel were not in Palestine. Luther did not understand that they were actually in Europe. He goes on to say, I do not have the time at present to demonstrate what a rich fountainhead this verse is, and how the prophets drew so much information from it concerning the fall of the Jews and the election of the Gentiles, about which modern Jews and bastards know nothing at all. And here to me, it is amazing that Luther seems to understand that his modern Jews are indeed bastards, but he still gave them credit as being Israel. However, it is even more mystifying as to why he would still imagine them to have any claim to being Judah and Israel. It's incredible. He understood that the modern Jews were not the ancient and true Jews, yet he still calls them Judah. He understood that the modern Jews, that at least a great number of them, were bastards. He calls them the modern Jews and bastards, and says 
that they know nothing at all. But he still gave them credit for being Israel and Judah, which is um, definitely a conflict in his own thinking. It's a cognitive disconnect. Now, now the election of the Gentiles, we see that Judah, that, that, that Luther believed in replacement theology. The nations which the apostles went to were dispersed Israel. Israel dispersed long before 70 B.C., and Luther didn't understand that. And it was they who were to return to Yahweh God through Christ. And Luther should have understood that, and he did not. He's replacing these Jews that he thinks of Judah and Israel with these Gentiles who he does not understand are actually Judah and Israel. He was forced into universalism because of his incomplete understanding of who the Jews really were. He goes on to say, excuse me, but we have clearly and forcefully seen from this verse that the Messiah had to come at the time of Herod. The, alter the alternative would be to say that God failed to keep his promise and consequently lied. No one dare do that, say the accursed devil and his servants, the false bastards and strange Jews. As we get through the Jews of their lies, Martin Luther really tells us what he thinks of them, but he still thought they were Judah and Israel. They do this incessantly. In their eyes, God must be a liar. They claim that they are right when they assert that the Messiah has not yet come, despite the fact that God declared in very plain words that the Messiah would come before the scepter had entirely departed from Judah, meaning Judea, because that's where he thinks Judah is. And this scepter had been lost to Judah for almost 1,500 years now, meaning up to his own time. The clear words of God vouch for this, and so do the visible effect and fulfillment of these same words. Luther calls them Jews and bastards, where he ostensibly admits an understanding that at least many of them are bastards, even if he falls short by not comprehending that they were indeed all bastards. By Luther's time, all Jews are bastards. Luther then called them false bastards and strange Jews. I don't know why he would call them false bastards, because they were real bastards. And it's so close to the truth without actually seeing it. Luther's right there on the verge of the truth, almost down the path, the journey that it takes to realize exactly who the Jews are. And he fell short. He imagines that only devils could accuse God of lying without understanding that the Jews are actually devils who always accuse God of lying. If Luther had only believed the full words of Christ, who told us that they were indeed devils and who also professed that they were not his sheep for which reason 
they did not believe him. If Luther only believed those words, he could have come to the complete, completely correct confusion, conclusion, I'm sorry, that the Jews are not Israel or Judah, and they are indeed bastards and devils. This only demonstrates the power of God, for it was not yet time for the blindness of Israel to be lifted as to, the, as to their own identity and that of the Jews. It's still not time for most of us. Back to Martin Luther. What do you hope to accomplish by engaging an obstinate Jew in a long dispute on this? It is just though it is just as though you were to talk to an insane person and prove to him that God created heaven and earth according to Genesis one, pointing out that heaven and earth to him with your hands, and he would nevertheless prattle that these are not the heaven and earth mentioned in Genesis 1, or that they were not heaven and earth at all, but were called something else. For this verse, the skeptic shall not depart from Judah, is as clear and plain as the verse, God created heaven and earth. And the fact that this scepter has been removed from Judah for almost 1,500 years is as patent and manifest as heaven and earth are. And Luther is confusing the Jews in Judea with Judah. So that one can readily perceive that the Jews are not simply erring and misled, but they are maliciously and willfully denying and blaspheming the recognized truth in violation of their conscience. Nobody should consider such a person worthy of wasting a single word on him. Even if it dealt with the mockingbird, much less it deals with exalted divine words and works. Luther's interpretation of Judah's scepter is forced. It's forced because he still imagines Judah to be in Palestine at the time of Christ when most of Judah is elsewhere. How could he so accurately portray the so-called Jews, yet still attach to them that government of Judah verges on double-mindedness because he still accepted many of the claims of those same people concerning their identity. And he seemed to be totally blind as to the ancient dispersions of Israel, even though those dispersions and where the Israelites would go. Isaiah sixty-six nineteen. Those are recorded in the Bible. Luther was still blind. But if anyone is tempted to become displeased with me, I will serve his purpose and give him the Jews' glosses on this text. First, I will present those who do not dismiss this text, but adhere to it, particularly to the Chaldean version, which, is, which no sensible Jew can deny. These twist and turn as follows. To be sure, they say, God's promise is certain but our sins prevent the fulfillment of the promise. Therefore, we still look forward to it until we have atoned. Is this not an empty pretext, even a blasphemous one? 
as if God's promise rested on our righteousness or fell with our sins. And, and this is a good, a good argument on the part of Luther. It, it's a good argument used in, in, in um, trying to make a bad proof, I believe. But it's something the Judeo-Christians also believe today it is that the, um, the promises of God are, are which are made in in many places in many places without condition as if they depended on some sort of condition and they certainly don't the promises to Abraham are made without condition and those to Jacob there are later promises made with condition and and Luther points that out as if God's promises rested on our righteousness or fell with our sins. This is tantamount to saying that God would have to become a liar because of our sin, and conversely, that he would have to become truthful again by reason of our righteousness. How could one speak more shamefully of God than to imply that he is a shaking reed which is easily swayed back and forth either by our falling down or standing up. And that's a great argument. Luther had had a lot of insight in, in some strange ways. This attitude of Luther's is excellent, but he himself, he himself does not apply it equally to other scriptures which make promises to Israel. He's totally blind to those to those promises to the children of Israel that they would become many nations, that kings, many kings would come from Abraham's loins and many similar promises. He, he ignores them and focuses uh, on, on the people of Judea as both the Jews and the Israelites. So, so Luther does great in a lot of ways and, and he's absolutely blinded in some amazing ways, but he's blinded in those ways where God said the children of Israel would be blind. If God were not to make a promise or keep a promise until we were rid of sin, he would have been unable to promise or do anything from the very beginning. As David says in Psalm 130, verse 3, If thou, O Lord, shouldest mark iniquity, Lord, who could stand? And this too is an excellent argument. And in Psalm 102, which is really for some reason Psalm 143, verse 2, Enter not into judgment with thy servant, for no man living is righteous before thee. And there are many more such verses. The example of the children of Israel in the wilderness can be cited here. God led them into the land of Canaan without any righteousness on their part. In fact, with their great sins and shame, solely on account of his promise. In Deuteronomy 9.5, Moses says, Know therefore, that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn and disobedient people. It seems to me this may indeed be called sin, 
That's Luther's parenthetical remark. But because of the promise which the Lord gave to your fathers, by way of example, he often wanted, wanted to exterminate them, meaning the Israelites, but Moses interceded for them. So little was God's promise based upon their holiness. And, and it's absolutely true. God's promises are indeed fulfilled regardless of the sin of Israel. And the people of Israel are saved by God in spite of themselves. However, none of that has anything to do with the Jews. And the only promises which the Jews may await to be fulfilled are those in reference to the Edomites and Esau, because that is who they truly are. Of course, Luther did not quite understand that. He was almost there, just not quite. Back to Luther. It is true that wherever, God's promise, wherever God promises anything conditionally or with reservation, saying, if you will do that, I will do this, then the fulfillment is contingent on our action. For instance, when he declared to Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 9, if you will keep my statutes and my ordinances, then this house shall be consecrated to me. If not, I shall destroy it. However, the promise of the Messiah is not thus conditional. For he does not say, if you will do this or that, then the Messiah will come. If you fail to do it, he will not come. But he promises him unconditionally, saying the Messiah will come at the time when the scepter has departed from Judah. And that's Luther's, that's Luther's interpretation of Genesis 49.10 we should not necessarily agree with it. As I've explained, Christ, the first time he came, Shiloh means peace. And the first time Christ came, he didn't come to bring peace. He came to bring a sword. The second time he comes, he brings peace. And he brings peace because it's an effectual peace. It's based on the effect that will occur when all of his enemies are destroyed. That's the peace he's going to bring the second time. Such a promise is based only on divine truth and grace, which ignores and disregards our doings. That renders this subterfuge on the Jews inane and moreover very blasphemous. It is true that God makes unconditional promises, there are many of them in Scripture, that do not depend on our righteousness or on anything that we do. And that those promises will indeed be fulfilled in spite of our disobedience. So Luther was very good for observing that. If it were true, in the way that Luther interprets it, that the Messiah will come at the time when the scepter is departed from Judah, then the Messiah should have come in 586 B.C., when the kingship in Judea ended because of the declaration of Yahweh 
that Jeconiah would never have seed to rule in Judah. And with the fall of Jerusalem, his uncle Zedekiah was blinded and imprisoned in Babylon after all of his sons were slain. So even though the physical line of Jeconiah survived, and it did, they were to never have seed. Jeconiah was never to have seed to rule in Judah. Strike ye this man childless. While there were men in Judah who were in line for the kingship after 586 B.C. with the return of the remnant, there was never a man of Judah sitting on the throne in Palestine or acting as a lawgiver after 586 B.C. Luther is forcing an interpretation which is based upon the false premise that the Edomite Jews of Palestine held the kingdom and scepter of Judah up until the time of Christ, which is not true. It's based on the false premise that the Levitical high priests of the Hasmonean dynasty held the kingdom and scepter of Judah up until the time of Herod. And that's not true. Back to Luther. The others who depart from this text subject almost every single word of it to severe and violent misinterpretation. They really do not deserve to have their dribble and filth heard. Still, in order to expose their disgrace, we must exercise a bit of patience and also listen to their nonsense. For since they depart from the clear meaning of the text, they already stand condemned by their own conscience, which would constrain them to heed the text, but to, to vex us, they conjure up the Hebrew words before our eyes, as though we were not conversant with the Chaldean text. And Luther relies greatly on the Aramaic text to prove his point here. He also refers to the others as if meaning others of the Jews. Some engage in fantasies here and say that Shiloh refers to the name to the name of that city where the Ark of the Covenant was kept, Judges chapter twenty one. So that the meaning would be that the scepter shall not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes, that is, until Saul is anointed king of Shiloh. That is surely foolish prattle. Prior to King Saul, not only did Judah have no scepter, but neither did all of Israel. How then can it have departed when Saul became king? The text declares that Judah had first been a lord over his brothers and that he then became a lion and therefore received a scepter. Likewise, before Saul's time, no judge was lord or prince over the people of Israel. As we gather from Gideon's speech to the people in reply to their wish that he and his descendants rule over them, he said, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord, meaning God, will rule over you. Judges chapter 8, verse 23. Nor was there a judge from the tribe of Judah, except perhaps for Othniel, Judges 3, 9. Joshua's immediate successor, 
All the others down to Saul were from the tribe, were from the other tribes. And although Othniel is called Caleb's youngest brother, this does not prove that he was of the tribe of Judah, since he may have had a different father. And it does not make sense that Shiloh should here refer to a city or to Saul's coronation in Shiloh. For Saul was anointed by Samuel, by Samuel in Ramath, and confirmed at Gilgal. And Luther here revealed his own sloppiness in formulating these arguments, since in 1 Chronicles chapter 4, Othniel is listed as the son of Kenaz, who himself was the brother of Caleb, and they are clearly both of the tribe of Judah. So Luther's trying to say that Othniel wasn't of Judah, but the scripture says that he was, just in a different place. In any case, what is the meaning of the Chaldean text, which says that the kingdom belongs to Shiloh, and that nations shall be subject to it? When was the city of Shiloh, or Saul, ever accorded such an honor? Luther's He's contesting the argument that Shiloh refers to the place in Palestine, which evidently some Jews had raised with him, discussing Genesis 49.10. He goes on to say, Israel is one nation, not many, with one body of laws, one divine worship, one name. And this is a big lack of discernment on Luther's part. He's describing the Israel of ancient times, and doing that, he was accurate, of course. However, Israel wasn't to stay that way. And that, too, is right in Jacob's prophecy of Genesis chapter 49. He goes on to say, There are many nations, however, which have different and various laws, names, and gods. Now, Jacob declares that not the one nation, Israel, which was already his or was under Judah's scepter, but other nations would fall to Shiloh. Therefore, and, and, and he's, here he's using an argument based on the last part of Genesis 49.10, where, where it says that people will make themselves obedient to it, and will address that. Therefore, this foolish talk reflects nothing other than the great stubbornness of the Jews, who will not submit to the saying of Jacob, although they stand convicted by their own conscience. And again, Luther is forcing an interpretation of Genesis 49.10 based on a false premise, where Jacob says in that verse, the gathering of the people. The word is am. It's Strong's number 5971. And it can easily be interpreted to refer to the people or peoples of the 12 tribes of Israel and not those of the Gentile or non-Israel nations. Luther is interpreting Genesis 49.10 in a manner that suits his own peculiar replacement theology that other nations would flock to Shiloh and make themselves gather and obedient, be obedient to him. And Luther believes that Shiloh is Christ. So, so it's, it's that simple. He's forcing this interpretation 
to fit a universalist theology. Israel was not one nation and people when Jacob uttered the words concerning Judah. But Luther seems to be purposely, but I'm sorry, Israel was one nation and people when Jacob uttered the words concerning Judah, but Luther seems to be purposely ignoring the fact that Jacob in Genesis 48 of Ephraim and Manasseh alone, never mind the, the words about Joseph in Genesis 49, Luther is ignoring the fact that Jacob had already issued several prophecies indicating that Israel would become many nations of people at the same time that Judah, the scepter, would not depart from Judah. Luther's just totally ignoring that important aspect of this prophecy in Genesis chapter 49. He's concentrating on only what's said about Judah, and he's taking all of that and insisting that it applies to the Jews. And, and his entire approach is based on those bad foundations. He goes on to say, Others indulge in the fancy that Shiloh refers to King Jeroboam, who was crowned in Shiloh and to whom ten tribes of Israel had defected from Rehoboam, the king of Judah, 1 Kings 12. Therefore, they say, this is Jacob's meaning. The skeptic shall not depart from Judah until Shiloh, that is, Jeroboam, comes. This is just as insane as the other interpretation, for Jeroboam was not crowned in Shiloh, but in Shechem, 1 Kings chapter 12. Thus the scepter did not depart from Judah, but the kingdom of Judah remained, together with the tribe of Benjamin and many of the children of Israel who dwelt in the cities of these two tribes, as we hear in 1 Kings 12. Excuse me. Moreover, the entire priesthood, worship, temple, and everything remained in Judah. Furthermore, Jeroboam never conquered the kingdom of Judah, nor did other nations fall to him as they were to fall to Shiloh. <laughs> For every rabbi, there's a false interpretation of Scripture, and, and Luther is going through them one at a time, right? Concerning Genesis 49.10. The third group babbles. Shiloh means sent, and this term applies to the book of Bezar of Babylon. So the meaning is that the skeptics shall not depart from Judah until Shiloh, that is, the king of Babylon, comes. This is Luther repeating Jewish garbage. He was to lead Judah into exile and destroy it. This also doesn't hold water, and a child learning his letters can disprove it. For Shiloh and Shiloh, the word for sent, right, are two different words. The later may mean sent, but that is not the word found here. It is Shiloh, and that, as the Chaldee says, means Messiah. Now, that was an interpretation on the part of the Aramaic interpreters, which Luther is following. It is not a true translation. The Septuagint translators had another interpretation. They rendered Genesis 49.10, 
as a ruler shall not fail from Judah, nor a prince from his loins, which kind of destroys Luther's thesis about the Maccabees and about Herod, until there come the things stored up for him, and he is the expectation of nations. So that has no reference at all to a Messiah. Shiloh is not even interpreted in, in the Septuagint translation of Genesis 49.10. Back to Luther. But the king of Babylon is not the Messiah who is to come from Judah, as the Jews and all the world know very well. Nor did the scepter depart from Judah, even though the Jews were led captive into Babylon. That was just a punishment for 70 years. Also during this time, great prophets, Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, appeared who upheld the scepter and said how long the exile would be. Furthermore, Jehoiachin, the king of Judah, Jehoiachin or Jehoiachin is also called Jeconiah and Coniah in scripture. Jehoiachin, the king of Judah, was regarded as a king in Babylon. And many of those who were led away into captivity returned home again during their lifetime. Haggai chapter 2. This cannot be viewed as loss of the scepter, but as a light flogging. Even if they were deprived of their country for a while by way of punishment, God nonetheless pledged his precious word that they would remain assured of their land. But during the last 1,500 years, not even a dog, much less a prophet, has any assurance concerning the land. Therefore, the scepter is now definitely departed from Judah, as I have written more about this against the Sabbatarians. And Luther, insisting that the scepter remained in Judah, in Palestine, beyond the Babylonian captivity, points to Jehoiachin who was also known as Jeconiah, as the bearer of that scepter. And it's true, in captivity, Jehoiachin was, was known as king. But Luther ignores the prophecy found in Jeremiah 22.30 concerning this same man, where the word of Yahweh says, Thus saith Yahweh, Write this man childless, a man that shall not prosper in his days. For no man of his seed shall prosper sitting upon the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. Now the Septuagint version of that passage reads very similarly. It's just about the same. There was no scepter in Judah in Palestine after 586 B.C. Zedekiah, his daughters didn't go into captivity in Babylon. His sons were all killed before his eyes. Zedekiah was the uncle of Jeconiah. Jeconiah, he went into captivity in Babylon, but Yahweh said that none of his seed would rule any more in Judah. Luther continues, so that we may finish the last two paragraphs of his chapter. The fourth group twists 
the word Shabbat and interprets it to mean that the rod will not depart from Judah until Shiloh, that is, his son will come, who will weaken the Gentiles. This, these regard the rod as the punishment and exile in which they now live. But the Messiah will come and slay all the Gentiles. That is humbug. It ignores the Chaldean text entirely, something they may and dare not do, and is a completely arbitrary interpretation of the word Shabbat. They overlook the preceding words in which Jacob makes Judah a prince and a lion or king, adding immediately thereafter that the scepter or Shabbat shall not depart from Judah. How could such an odd meaning about the punishment follow right on the heels of such glorious words about a principality or kingdom? The sins which provoked such a punishment would have had to have been proclaimed first. But all that we find mentioned here are praise, honor, and glory to the tribe of Judah. Luther is only proving to us that every group will attempt to interpret the prophecy in order to accommodate their own situation or their own peculiar beliefs. Any interpretation which does not accept the text for what it says and which attempts to twist word meanings to fit a particular situation is destined to fail. Luther's own interpretation is not much better than those of the Jews. He accepts the words of the prophecy, but then he, he, he twists the history of the kingdom in order to fulfill the words as he says that they should be fulfilled, and, and he is kind of twisting, taking advantage of the Aramaic translation. He's kind of twisting that word Shiloh to mean Messiah, which is not quite true. Even though Christ is our peace, we don't have peace yet. To conclude with Luther, and even if the word Shabbat does, does designate a rod for punishment, how would that help them? For the judges, or the king's rod, is also a rod of punishment for the evildoers. Indeed, the rod of punishment cannot be any but a judge's or sultan's rod, since the right to administer punishment belongs solely to the authority. Deuteronomy 32. Mihi vindicatum. Vengeance is mine. In any event, this meaning remains unshaken, unshaken, that the scepter or rod of Judah shall remain, even if this rod is one of punishment. But this arbitrary interpretation of the rabbis points to a foreign rod, which does not rest in Judah's hand, but on Judah's back, and is wielded by a foreign hand. Even if this meaning were possible, which it is not, what would we do with the other passage that speaks of the Safra, or Mehokek, at his feet? This would then also have to be a foreign lord's Mehokek, or, or lawgiver, and a foreign nation's feet. But since Jacob declares that it is to be Judah and the Mehokek, or lawgiver, of his feet, the other term, the rod, must also represent the rule of his tribe. And of course, any interpretation which Luther is offered here of Genesis 49.10 assumes the Jews to be Judah. So they are all wrong. 
all the interpretations he offered from all the Jews are wrong, and his own is wrong, because he's blind to the fact that Judah is somewhere else. Only the Christian identity understanding of the scepter of Judah can accept the literal meaning of the prophecy without twisting the word Shiloh into Messiah, which it does not mean. That's an interpretation that should not be allowed to stand. And we see the Septuagint. Those translators certainly did not see that in their Hebrew text of Genesis 49.10. Only the Christian identity understanding of the scepter of Judah can accept the literal meaning of the prophecy along with the knowledge that since the Exodus, and Luther was missing this knowledge, since the Exodus from Egypt, there has been a portion of Judah in Europe. And that most of Judah has been in Europe since the days of Sennacherib, the Assyrian king, who took away most of Judah. The scepter never did depart from Judah, except that today there's something else going on. Today, there is another prevailing prophecy found in Revelation chapter 17. And they have with, certain, with, with certainty, with certainty, the children of Israel have handed their kingdom over to the beast. Now, Christ is king, and from that, only he can save them. So there's other things going on today besides the scepter of Judah, which in this day and age are prevailing. And we're told that it would be that way. They would hand their kingdom over to the beast. And today, most of the royalty of Europe has Edomite blood. So there are other things going on. The tabernacles of David have fallen. <laughs> They've definitely fallen. And that also is a matter of prophecy. So there are other things going on. But the scepter, the scepter of Judah did exist in the time period that Luther is, is describing, but it was not in Palestine. And the scripture precludes it from being in Palestine. However, Luther blindly accepted that the Jews were Israel, the Jews were Judah, did not understand that they were anywhere else, that they had any other identity, so he had to look for the fulfillment of that scripture in Palestine, where you can't find it. It's amazing to me that Luther understood that the Jews were bastards that the ancient Jews were the true Jews and still didn't see that they were Edomites, still took it for granted that they should be fulfilling this prophecy about Judah's scepter, still taking it for granted that they were Israel and Judah. We will see next week what Luther says in part five of the Jews and their lives. And we won't stay on this topic long. We're we're probably going to revisit it until we're through it. But we're going to um, 
in the next few weeks, I'm going to do at least one more two seed line program because I want to debunk some um, long-time misunderstandings which are even in Christian identity concerning um, Isaiah chapter 14, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, possibly Luke chapter 4, which I've already addressed at length in, in other places, and also um, Ezekiel 27 and 28, chapters that are attributed, things that are attributed to um, a mystical Satan in heaven, and they're wrongly attributed in that manner by um, certain people, even in Christian identity, who still cling to the Roman Catholic notion or, or the Catharist, dualist notion of a Satan in heaven, which is absolutely ridiculous. It, it, that, that's a, um, a notion that should be put as far away from Christian identity as possible. Satan is all around us, and we see them every day. We will be here next Friday with Romans chapter 9. Jacob, and Esau. That might be fun. Praise Yahweh. Thank you for listening, and good night.